Welcome. You're listening to Sanseat. Where you'll find everything to do with spirituality, life lessons, holistic living, and medicine. To become your true self. We all have stories, journeys, experiences, and love. Here's your host, Erin O'Dowd. Hello and welcome. On today's show of Sanseesh, we have David Young. He is a musician. He has made music for relaxation and meditation. He plays his music through flutes. And hello, David. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I am doing wonderful. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. When did you discover music in your life? I started in the third grade in the New York City school system playing the recorder. It's that little flute-like instrument. And I was the worst in my class for the first year, but by some miracle we got a second year of it. And during that second year, I really started to catch it. And by the end of the year, I was lost in my class. And I had a love for music ever since then. And so I played different styles of music. I actually used to play rock music in the 80s and 90s. And then I started playing this relaxing, meditative, healing music. And uh, one thing led to another, and I sold way over a million CDs now. And every day, about 300,000 people all over the world listen to my music in hospitals, healing centers, all sorts of, you know, new thinking, living places. You mentioned the recorder. I spent some time with my family in Austin, Texas, and I learned also learned the recorder in third grade as well. So it's funny how the how it's all together. Well, if you think about it, since every kid learns to play the recorder in the third or fourth grade, the recorder is actually the most universal instrument on this planet because more people have played it than any other instrument. Yeah, and after the recorder, what was your next instrument? Oh, I started playing the guitar in high school. Like to play like Led Zeppelin and ACDC and Bad Company and all that kind of 70s rock music. And played guitar for many years and I sang. Actually, believe it or not, I played in an ACDC tribute band. I dressed up like Angus Young for two years doing like a Beatlemania of the band ACDC. It was a very successful group. And then I started playing my own music. And because I was playing my own music, I, I starved for about eight more years. And then I started playing the flute again. Um, basically, because I was down to my last hundred bucks, I was dirty. I was living in California and the desperation I had no other choice but to go down to Venice Beach and start playing my flute at Venice Beach. I met a woman who played the harp. We made a tape with my last hundred dollars. We sold 10,000 copies of that tape over the following two years. And those tapes originally were called Celestial Winds. Then we made three albums together. We traveled all around the United States playing at festivals and we sold 100,000 CDs. And at that time, we were totally sick of each other, so we stopped working together and we we each went solo and, you know, all these other things have happened ever since. Tell us about that celestial music. What was it designed or tell us about that? Well, I had a partner who played the harp. Her name was Lisa. And so we made music that was harp and I played the two flutes. And, you know, when we got popular doing it, this was before this gigantic wave of spirituality swept the country, actually swept the world. And we were playing this music because it made us feel good. We, you know, we 
we were able to make a living doing it, and so we kept doing it. It was very ethereal with those two instruments. Yeah, it's a strange combination to put the two of them together. Well, it's strange nowadays to put them together, but if you went back 400 years, those two instruments were together quite often, you know, because back in the Renaissance and the Baroque period, a harp and a flute, that was before heavy metal, in case you weren't sure. You know? <laughs> when you had this music done, did you feel like you were kind of going back in history and reinventing this music to today's age? Boy, if I said yes, it would really give us all this other stuff to talk to, but to tell you the truth, I was just um, trying to survive, you know, because survival was a great teacher. And I needed to make money because I was 30 years old and, you know, I didn't want to get a job. I was living in California. And by calling with this woman who played the harp at Venice Beach every weekend, basically from 10 in the morning to 5 at night, I was able to make enough money to live so that I didn't have to get a job. I mean, I wasn't getting rich at all, but I, I made enough money to pay my rent and pay my bills and eat. And that gave me time to figure out what to do next, you know? And then, you know, we found out about these these art festivals back in the early 90s and, you know, tons of people were going to these art festivals and buying everything you can imagine. And so, you know, instead of selling, let's say, a uh, hundred CDs, because we started making CDs, so instead of selling a hundred CDs a day, at these big festivals, we were able to sell 200 or 300 CDs a day. And so it was really just a practical thing of, you know, you got to eat, you have to survive. Playing this music was making it possible. So back in that time, we would play a combination of original music that was very relaxing with a couple of cover songs. Like we played uh, uh, the song from John Lennon called Imagine. I don't know if you've ever heard that song. But, mm. I mean, I don't even dream 
the recognizable songs CDs out to my events. I don't even bring them because I just bring the original music that is the most relaxing music that I have. Because I had some original music that was mid-tempo, but with the popularity of yoga and meditation and Reiki, I mean, there are people every day who are meditating and they need music to meditate to. Or, you know, if there's a healing clinic and you need uh, music to keep people calm, you know, to just help promote the whole process of healing. Having the most healing music available really enhances the work that they do. And, you know, I've been meditating now for 32 years and so I've been um, able to learn how to translate that piece that I had in my meditation into this music that really fits a need in our society now. What kind of meditation do you do? Well, usually people meditate with the word only. And um, I've meditated with the word hue, H-U. It's like one half of the word human. You know, at some of the workshops I do, I've experimented. And, and people, when we meditate with the word only, feel like they've really grounded with the earth. And when we meditate at times with the sound hue, people feel like it's opening them up more to the heavens. I mean, each one of them is good. And basically with meditation, the goal of meditation is to learn how to relax your mind, to let it settle down. So this way there's some peace in between your thoughts. And the more space you have between your thoughts, the more you can get messages from your spiritual guides or from God or from spirit, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, so most people meditate for five minutes and they say, well, this doesn't work because my, I can't get my mind out of the way. And that's because your mind is used to being busy and running around inside your head, keeping track of all the things you need to do all day long. So in the first five minutes, your mind is still in that pattern because that's what your mind has been taught to do. But if you can stay in your meditation past 15 minutes, there's more space in between your thoughts. And in that space is where you find peace and where you can also get in your guidance, you know. And I've recently started meditating longer because I usually meditated for 20, 30 minutes for the first 30 years that I was doing it. But now I like to meditate whenever I can, whenever time allows for 45 minutes or an hour. Because once you get into that deep state, and your thoughts are very far apart and you're receiving all that inner peace and whatever spirit wants to give to you in that moment. Once you get into that place, you don't really want to go out of that place because it's so wonderful, it's so beautiful. And so I really recommend to people that you meditate without a clock. You know, I mean, if you have to get out to work, you know, you need a clock, but that's a different thing. But I think it's good to meditate without a clock. So this way you're not thinking, oh, well, at 30 minutes, I'm going to be done. I don't think meditation of its best use when we're thinking, okay, well, I'm going to do this for 30 minutes, and after that, I'm going to watch a TV show. I think it's great to go into the meditation open-minded is how long it's supposed to go instead of it being like a ritual. Oh, I did my 30 minutes. I'm good for today. I think it's more from the heart when you don't do it with a clock. And if you think about it, clocks have only been in our society for 200 or 300 years, I would guess, you know. Um, when people meditated 500 years ago or 1,000 or 2,000 or 5,000 years ago, you didn't meditate with a clock. You meditated to, to connect with that inner peace and to get answers to make your life better and so you would feel better as a person. 
when you meditated, do you meditate with the music or is it just silence? Well, I have to tell you that I used to meditate just to silence. But recently, I've been meditating with one of my songs. That's a very, very deep, relaxing song. And what happens is that if, if you meditate with the same piece of music and you're used to getting that deep feeling after 20 or 30 minutes, when you start another meditation of the day, if you start with that same music, your mind instantly relaxes to that place of peace that you heard that music in the day before after 20, 30 minutes. And so that's a good technique that I've been doing because it really helps. And when you were making your relaxing music, did you have to get certain frequencies to make the person relaxed or was it just mixing instruments? Well, there's different kinds of effects and echo that you can add to music that makes it sound more ethereal. And where this whole thing has gone is like, I never, ever had a clue that I would be doing now what my career consists of now. There's nothing in the world that could have ever convinced me that these events that I do would have evolved to the place that they've, they've evolved to. Because the things that people experience at my events, I didn't even know that these were possible. I didn't know it was possible for people to have these experiences because, you know, when I had been meditating for all those years, you know, after 15 minutes, you get to that inner peace and it's beautiful and I see that inner light and the, the color I usually see is purple. Okay, every once in a while, then it'll change into like a goldish color. But for the most part, I saw this purple light in my meditations for 30 years. And I started to do these events about a year and a half ago. And I was hoping that people would find that same inner peace that I had found in meditation while I was playing the flute. You know, I, I was hoping that, you know, maybe they would see a purple light or a white light or a blue light while they were feeling that piece. And I really thought that was all the options. You know, I didn't think there were any other options on the menu besides that. And I started doing these meditation events where I would play the flute for a half hour. And in the beginning, I called them soul activation events because people were saying that they felt like their soul was being activated, like it was not necessarily being turned on, but they were able to experience and recognize that part. That's like their spiritual frequency went to a higher level. I was so surprised that at the first meditation event that I did, five people in the room shared when the meditation was done that they had connected with their favorite grandfather or their mom or their son or best friend from childhood who died young, you know. And it was just really incredible for me to, to hear the details of the conversations and how their relatives, you know, showed them all around heaven where they lived and sometimes they would introduce them to some of their other relatives and some of these other relatives could have been people that they knew. But there are sometimes that they would meet relatives that they completely didn't know um, because they were not alive when they were born, you know what I mean? When the person in the audience mm -hmm. was born. So there were people who met relatives that they had never even known. And so that went on for about six months. And uh, every one of the events that I did, people shared those kind of experiences, you know? Every once in a while, there would be someone in the audience who had an experience that I called the lineup, where, you know, when you go to a wedding and all the guests line up and wait, to hug or kiss or give money or give a wish to the bride and groom. Mm -hmm. Well, it was like that, except 
it's not a bride and groom, it's just this one person. There could be 20 of their relatives lined up and waiting to tell them something or give them a hug or give them a message for somebody who's still alive on earth. You know, I, I tried to show when these things first started happening, I tried to make it look like I wasn't as surprised as I was. And it became such a consistent thing that it's a completely normal part of my life at this point. And, you know, after a year and a half of doing this, about 2,700 people at my events have shared that experience. Uh, it was just, it's been an amazing education for me about how our physical world interacts with the heavenly world, with that higher dimension. The way life has been set up, you know, most people have been afraid to talk about their spiritual experiences in public because that's a very involved thing of why people have not shared their experiences in public, but we are in a whole new time in the evolution of mankind. Um, there's never been a time on this planet where there have been this many people who are actively pursuing their spiritual goals or climbing the spiritual ladder or trying to find out more about who they really are. You know, who are they as soul? And what is this whole thing really about? The reason why that is is because up until the last 20 years, we've always been so enmeshed in this thing called survival. You know, if you go back 500 years or 1,000 years or 2,000 years or 4,000 years, there were so many wars constantly and there was so much cruelty that was done like everywhere by whatever country had the power over the other countries, you know. And so people didn't have a chance to really work on their spirituality because they were trying to survive, you know what I mean? If you're dealing with all the elements, like if you're living in a jungle and just trying to survive every day, you know, and not get eaten by an animal or being attacked by some other tribe or something like this. Survival was the main driving force for mankind. And over the last 20, 30 years, because we've been fortunate enough to have as much peace that we have in the world, mankind has had the time and the opportunity to focus on something other than just surviving. So this is the first time we've had this. This all lined up with the end of the Mayan calendar in 2012. You know, what that was really about was the end of this couple thousand year period of time when the religious organizations had such a control over people, control of not only what they thought about, but about what people shared with other people. And they had such control about what people believed in because they were able to use these different fear tactics to tell people that if you didn't read a certain book, pray to a certain guy, these terrible things were going to happen to you whenever you die. Because people didn't know any better. They believed all that stuff. And if people had spiritual experiences at that time, when they would share them with whatever priest or minister or whatever it was, I mean, because the priest or minister really didn't know anything about having those kinds of spiritual experiences. And those priests and ministers were taught not to promote those kind of experiences. Um, and so when the church and the state was all connected, people got put in jail for sharing spiritual experiences, you know? Where now, 
it is totally open and accepted for people to share their spiritual experiences with one another. And this is all part of this grand thing that's happening in the world that's called the Ascension. One of the things that I just found out, because I just performed at this big convention in Orlando, Florida, called the IANS Convention. It's I-A-N as in Nancy, D as in David, S as in Sam. And what that stands for is the International Association of Near-Death Studies. About 35 years ago, these people who had had near-death experiences all got together and they put together like a, a group so this way other people who had had near-death experiences would have somebody to talk about. Because when somebody had a near-death experience, whether it was through a car accident or whether it was through an operation, when they would share these experiences with their doctor or whoever they were sharing with, because most people had not had that experience of taking a short trip to the heavenly dimension and coming back to your physical body to be able to talk about it with people. It was frustrating for the people who had that experience because they didn't really know who they could talk to about it. And, you know, many people that were involved in the medical industry, they didn't know how to answer the questions that these people had of what was that. And so 35 years ago, they started this organization. And I would like you to guess how many documented near-death experiences have been shared in the United States alone in the last 35 years. Take a guess. Probably 10,000. That's a good guess. It's actually 20 million people have shared their near-death experiences with their doctors. Wow. 20 million people. And that's just the United States. Of those 20 million people, some of these people have gone to professional hypnotists so they could be put under hypnosis to help them heal different things in their life. And do you know that there are 7,000 people who when they describe their near-death experience under hypnotism, under hypnosis, 7,000 people all described the exact same thing of what heaven was like. Now, one of the biggest questions mankind has had is what happens to us after we die? 7,000 people who under hypnosis all said the exact same thing. They found themselves flying through a tunnel. If they were in a car accident before they got to the tunnel, they were separated from their body like a viewpoint, like looking down on their body from above. And they were completely disconnected from any pain or feeling or, or emotion or anything with their physical body. It was like their soul was above their body, looking down, watching everything happen. Sometimes it happens in, in slow motion. Okay. Mm -hmm. And many people said that in that moment, they saw their entire lifetime flash before their eyes, like in a second, but they, they saw their entire life. And they found themselves flying through a tunnel at a very fast speed. And there was a light at the end of the tunnel. And the closer they got to that light, the more euphoric and beautiful the feeling was in this incredible love that everybody described as being beyond words. The closer they got to this light, the more intense this love was. When they finally get to the light, the, the feeling is like out of this world. It's so beautiful and so heavenly. And they realize, oh my gosh, I'm in heaven. So if I'm in heaven, I wonder if I'm going to see my dad or my grandmother. And instantly, their dad or their grandmother walked up. Or they might think, oh my gosh, I'm in heaven. 
I wonder if I'm going to see Buddha or if I'm going to see Jesus. And instantly, Buddha or Jesus walk up. When you heard this or read this information, what ran through your own mind? When I just found out this information about the 20 million people and the 7,000 people under hypnosis, you know, I have already, this was last week when I got those numbers and I found out how amazing that is. I had already done a year and a half of these events where 2,700 people had described to me what it was like in meditation while I was playing the flute. Had that conversation with their mom or their favorite grandfather or their friend from childhood or their husband or their wife. I had already heard 2,700 people share those experiences. So I had, you know, it was shocking to me in the beginning. I'm sure it would be shocking to you, you know. Yeah. Um, and, you know, most of the people would be sharing this experience with such joy and happiness that it was so beautiful to see. And some people were bawling their eyes out because it was so emotional for them to finally know that their mom was in a beautiful place. That her mom still existed. And the love that her mom had for her all, all of her life still exists in the same exact beautiful way. So it wasn't like, you know, like right now, I just shared those numbers with you. And it's amazing to think that there's that many people who are having these kinds of experiences. And, you know, right now in America alone, there are 25 million people doing yoga at least twice a week. I remember 30 years ago when I was getting into spirituality. If you talk to somebody about yoga or meditation, 30 years ago, it was kind of weird. Right now I'm in Miami. If you don't do yoga or meditation in Miami, you look at it as weird. Yeah. And the 25 million Americans who are doing yoga, those are just the yogis. There's another 25 million Americans doing some form of meditation every week. Wow. 50 million Americans. And the thing that I'm sharing with people is that you don't have to be cautious or afraid to share your spiritual practice with people anymore. I do events in three or four cities every week. I did 185 events over the last year and a half since I started doing these events. This is completely what I do now. And do you feel with this playing the flute when you, from your first album to now, the comparison of all this this knowledge and information I've experienced? Well, I've learned a couple of songs that I'm just joking about. <laughs> um, uh, what happens is that I, I play two flutes at one time. What I do is that I create a very comfortable space for, for the audience. Everybody feels very safe. And I share with the people what is possible. I share with them what other people have experienced at the workshops previous. Because this is going to open their mind to the possibility of spiritual experiences that they may not have ever thought were possible. If you don't think something is possible, you can't do it. You know what I mean? If you can't imagine doing something, you just can't do it. But if somebody says, hey, look, somebody else had this experience, well, then it's possible. So I had three people in one event saw Jesus standing in the same spot in the room. I've had five people at another event all described seeing the exact same green grassy hill with a wheelbarrow on it with purple flowers on it with little yellow polka dots. And I didn't say anything about any wheelbarrow or purple flowers with yellow polka dots. How could five people in one group close their eyes, listen to my music, and all see the same exact image? 
there has to be something more than their imagination. It is more than their imagination because in the heavenly dimension, they have different rules in that dimension like we have in this physical dimension. Like, for example, when you walk around, you breathe, you move your arms, you can talk to people differently as when you're scuba diving under the water in that dimension. There's a different set of rules under the water. There's a different set of rules in the heavenly dimension that do not apply here in the physical dimension. They just don't apply. It's a whole different ball game over there. So when you're in the heavenly dimensions, whatever you think manifests instantly. That's why all those thousands of people who describe their near-death experience when they said, I got to heaven, I realized, wow, I wonder if I'm going to see my grandmother. And a second later, my grandmother walks up. It sounds like that your your floosh is like the snake charmer charming the person to experience a divine experience or out-of-box experience. Yeah, absolutely. The only thing is that, you know, nobody's afraid that there's no snakes because there's some people who are really afraid of snakes, you know. Um, so you don't have to worry about the snakes at all. It is kind of like that, and I thought about that, and the funny thing to me is, you know, when I started doing these events, I'd already sold a million CDs, I already got nominated for two Grammys, you know, I had done all this stuff in my life. When you sell a million CDs, you have no idea who's listening to those CDs when. It's like a bird that you set free. Let's say you set, set a million birds free, and you have no idea where they're flying around and how they're affecting people. So I thought I was just a good flute player. I didn't know that I had this ability to transform a room so people in the room could have an experience where they actually experience heaven. I just didn't know that was possible and I was incredibly surprised when people started sharing it. and. You know, one of the things that everybody has shared when they have a near-death experience or when they're at one of my events and they have a visit to heaven, to the to that other dimension, is that they describe this love. It's like there's this incredible love that's beyond any words that you could describe love with, but it's just everywhere. And that is because heaven vibrates with the frequency of love. Everything is connected, completely connected. You can't think about heaven the way you think about Earth. With Earth, if you want to talk to somebody who lives 100 miles away, you know, you have to pick up your phone to call them. But when you're in the heavenly dimension, there's a different set of rules. You don't need a cell phone to call anybody. All you have to do while you're in that heavenly dimension is think of that person. And that person instantly, immediately, shows up. So my, my flute music creates this feeling of comfortableness, of safety, and it creates this heavenly vibe that vibrates with that frequency of love, of this higher love. And it pulls people or allows people to be so relaxed and disconnected from their body and from what their mind is normally doing. It allows them to float up with the music into that heavenly dimension. When they're in that heavenly dimension, they are vibrating to that frequency 
of love, that universal love, that divine love, that godly love that everybody talks about who's had a near-death experience. And so the thing is, is that once they've had a taste of that, then they actually have proof that there's life after this life. Um, I can't tell you how many people at my events have said, you know, I'm not afraid of death anymore. I mean, I want to live my life fully, and I hope I live a very long life. But after seeing how beautiful and wonderful heaven is, I don't have to be afraid of what's going to happen to me after I die because I have experienced that oneness. I've experienced that connection that everything has in that heavenly dimension. To say that that thing brings people peace of mind is like such a such a beautiful thing, you know? And that's why there's so many of, at this point, 1,200 people at my events. Honestly, I can't tell you the exact number because every week I do three or four events. And so, you know, every night at every event, five or 10 or 15 people will have an experience where they meet and have a conversation with Mother Mary or Buddha or Kuan Yin or Jesus or Moses or one of what's called the heavenly team. You know, on earth, all of those guys are, are separated. People look at religion as a total separate thing. But in heaven, nothing is separate. Everything is vibrating to that frequency of divine love. And because it is, all there is in heaven is joy and love and happiness. If somebody desired being unhappy in heaven, they can choose that. But naturally, everything in heaven is filled with this frequency of divine law. So obviously, the most spiritual beings of, you know, who have lived on earth, the guys who I just named, they are all connected. Friends working together to help with the upliftment of mankind on earth and to help with the upliftment of mankind in heaven because there are different levels of heaven. Okay? But they all work together and they're friends and they love each other. The only thing in competition is the organizations of the different religions because they're in competition on every Sunday. Well, you're either going to drop your 20 bucks in this basket in this building or you're going to drop your 20 bucks in a different basket in a different building. But in the heavenly dimension, it's all connected. It's all one. It's all vibrating with that frequency of love. It's, it's just the way it is. In one of your events, you talk about a story how you had a feeling to connect with Paul McCartney. Can you share that story about that story to us? You know, if we ask God in the right way, whether you call it God, Spirit, your angels, it doesn't matter what you're calling, because you know the heavenly dimension can feel when we're speaking to it. Here's everything we ask it. Sometimes it takes 24 hours for a wish to come true or a miracle to happen. Sometimes it takes 24 years, you know. But what happened was, um, it was back in, I think it's 1998 or 1999. You know, everybody knew Paul McCartney was married to Linda McCartney and they were so happy together. It was, you know, they had this beautiful relationship. They had four kids and Linda got breast cancer. And so Paul was with her through the whole process. Eventually, she died. The whole world was 
feeling that loss for Paul, you know, in, in a supportive way. It was always on the news and everything, you know. And at that time, there were so many thousands of people that were using my music for healing in different ways. So I was living in LA at the time, and I spoke to all the different people I knew in the music industry to see if anybody was connected to Paul McCartney so I could get one of my CDs to Paul. Because, you know, he's a human being, and, you know, if other people are using my music for healing and sending me letters every single day, how much it's helped them. You know, I had respect for him, a lot of respect for him as a singer and a songwriter and everything, you know. I figured I would try to get him one of my CDs so he could benefit or he could hopefully find some peace in my music the way thousands of other people have found peace in my music. But after I called all my friends, nobody really um, had a connection to Paul McCartney. So I said a little prayer. And the prayer I said was, God, if, if my music is supposed to get to Paul McCartney so it can help bring him peace, it's in your hands. So about six months went by after I, I said that prayer. And I got a call for an event in Atlanta, Georgia. And so I talked about, you know, the finances of all this stuff. And it turned out that it was an event for Heather McCartney that was, that's Paul McCartney's eldest daughter. Okay. And obviously my first question is, is Paul McCartney going to be there? And the person on the phone said, well, we really don't know. And I said, you know, I'll do this event. I'll fly to Atlanta. I'll do this event. I'm doing it really just because if, if it's a possibility for Paul McCartney to be there, that's a really cool thing. I, I'll, I'll do it. And so the following month, I flew to, to Atlanta. And, um, you know, it was incredible because I'd never seen anybody who had that kind of effect on people, who had that kind of charisma, who walks into a room and all of a sudden people go crazy. You know what I mean? Even though the people at this event were all 60, 70, 80 year old people who were businessmen and were businesswomen. Um, they were basically the grandmas and grandpas of the world and they just went crazy when, when Paul McCartney walked in. So there was security there and because this was Paul's first public appearance in the six months since Linda had translated to that heavenly realm, it was a big deal in every single television station and magazine and Everything you could imagine in the media was there. And so he walked into the room, he got rushed by all these people and all these cameras and all these people. And, you know, he was watching me playing the two flutes and he was trying to keep eye contact with me to see how I was playing the two flutes at one time because I don't think he'd ever seen anybody do that. And he kept giving me the thumbs up and smiling at me. And it was just like such a warm feel feeling like I'd known him forever. It was really, really bizarre. Like, when he and Heather walked in with their bodyguard right before they got mobbed by the press, he said, hey, Heather, look, the food guy is here. Like I was an old friend. It was so weird, you know? And so after the event was over, you know, he came over to me and everybody, you know, there was like 200 people in the room, everybody quieted down because they could see that, you know, Paul was talking to me and uh, they wanted to hear what he was going to say. And, he, you know, he told me how well done he thought it was. I said, thank you very much, sir. I called him sir just because out of respect, you know, I really respected him, you know. And he had just been knighted, I don't know if it was a couple of weeks before, and maybe he just 
didn't expect to have an uh, American guy call him sir. I don't, I don't know what, but he was just so surprised that I called him sir and said, well, you know, there's not enough praise here for you. And, you know, you deserve a lot better than that. So he just, you know, started standing ovation for me and the whole crowd figured, well, Paul McCartney's got pretty good taste in music. If he's clapping for this guy, I guess I should clap for him also, you know? And so it, the whole focus of the whole event the light was shining on me. It was really, really a total high point in my life. And I had completely forgot that I had said that prayer where I said, God, if my music is meant to get to Paul McCartney, you know, it's in your hands. I forgot about it. And I ended up giving him one of my CDs from my hand right to his hand. You know, it wasn't mailed by anybody or given by somebody else or something like that. It was from my hand right to his hand. And um, when I remembered that I had, you know, put that out to the universe, it made it all that more amazing to me, the fact that something like that could actually come back. And how do you, are you able to play the two flutes together? Um, there are two Renaissance flutes called recorded. And um, so I put the mouthpieces in, in, in my mouth, one on the left side, one on the right side, and, you know, each of my hands changes the notes, and they're different sizes recorders. So I figured out all different harmonies and different things, how I can do it. I've done it so much over the last 25 years that I really don't even have to think about it anymore. You can ask me math questions while I'm playing two flutes at one time and I can answer them. Wow. I'm, believe me, I'm, I'm not that good at math, but it's just that I, I, it's so second nature, I don't have to think about it. At the end of that event, Paul McCartney, did you feel like you had achieved something or was it just a satisfaction? Well, it was pretty cool because um, you know, I gave him a CD to give to Heather, his daughter, because it was her event and it was her special day. Then his manager came up to me and asked to have a CD for him and a CD for Paul. You know, I didn't charge him for the CD, but I gave him the CD. And um, so he took that CD back to his office and a couple of months later, I had met somebody in Los Angeles who worked with somebody who worked for Paul McCartney um, at his office. This person told me that, you know, every time he calls to talk to his friend who works at McCartney's publishing company, every time he calls, it's my music that Paul has on hold. And I later found out through that person that Paul had my CD on repeat all day long in the office and on their sound system in the office, as well as on their on hold answering machine for months. So. Apparently, uh, you know, he liked it. <laughs> <laughs> you know what, I don't want to assume anything, but I guess if I'm going to make a, a presumption that I guess if he had it on repeat for that long, he probably liked it. I can't speak for him, right? Is that one of many stories that happened through your career so far? Oh my God, I've written three books. I have one book that's called Divine Inner Guidance, which is about the incredible things that happen when you listen to your intuition, as well as the absolutely incredible things that happen if you don't listen to your intuition. They're both incredible. One side is enjoyable, the other side is not enjoyable. You know? So that's what Divine Inner Guidance is about, and that's the Paul McCartney stories in the book. Then um, I got a publishing deal at the end of 2013 about my experiences that, that started with George Harrison in 2010. George had crossed over in 2001. His physical life ended and, you know, he uh, went into the heavenly dimension. You know, sometimes people call that death, but, you know, we have all these different emotions that are 
around the word death. And, you know, he basically went to the next level and um, he had been meditating so much in his life anyway. When he went to the next dimension, um, he'd already been there quite often because he'd been meditating, you know. And I had no idea why he was interested in me when he started appearing in my life in 2010. And so that experience went on for three years and I consistently talked myself out of it because my logical mind kept getting in the way because I didn't believe that that was possible. So some miraculous thing would happen and I filled the whole book with all these experiences that George had orchestrated in my life. Some miraculous thing would happen and I'd tell all my friends about it for two days and then my logical mind would get involved and diminish everything and convince me to dismiss it. And so that went on for three years and after three years it became so obvious because these things were not only happening in my life, they were happening when I was around some of my friends, like George would manifest these miracles in front of my friends, you know, or my family. There were enough things that happened where I stopped talking myself out of it. And right around the time when I stopped talking myself out of it, I started to have these, these ideas that I used to call inklings. Because they were thoughts, but I really couldn't share these thoughts with anybody because they were really out of the box. And my thought was, at least I thought these were my thoughts. I didn't understand at the time that these thoughts were being planted. I thought my thoughts were my own. Most people think their thoughts, that they are the originator of their thoughts, but that is not the way it really works. Because all of our spiritual guides and our loved ones and our relatives and our friends in heaven, they send us messages. And whether we realize we're sent these messages or not is irrelevant. But we think that these messages that we're getting are our own thoughts. Like, for example, if you're walking down the street and you get this nagging feeling to cross the street. Now, you're thinking, why should I cross the street? I'm happy walking on this side of the street. The place I'm going is on this side of the street. My logical mind is saying, stay on the side of the street. But you're getting this nagging feeling to cross the street. So, eventually, you cross the street and you run into somebody because you've gone on the, on the other side of the street that you would have never seen if you hadn't listened to that gut feeling. And some wonderful thing happens to you because you listen to that nagging feeling that you can call your gut feeling or your intuition. That is your loved ones, your relatives, your spirit guides, all inwardly screaming at you with a beautiful energy. Cross the street is something wonderful that you're going to like if you cross the street. And so when you follow that intuitive feeling, that intuitive feeling is completely connected to your spiritual guides and your loved ones, okay? So these inklings that I was getting after about three years of my experiences with George were, if George is in heaven, if John Lennon is in heaven, would George and John ever get together? I had been studying meditation and I, I had learned that there were different levels of heaven and that heaven is this gigantic place. So with it being such a big place, you know, would they get together once in a while? That was my first inkling. And then I was led to my second inkling. Second inkling was, if George and John got together in heaven once in a while, what would they talk about? And then the third inkling, since George has been so involved in my life, showing up to me and my friends and my mom and all of these things that have filled the book with all these experiences, would George have told John Lennon about me? This is 2013. 
And I have to tell you, the world has changed a lot in the last three years. Because now you can talk about stuff like that to people. They won't look at you like you're crazy. But I'm telling you, back in 2013, when I shared this with my mom, it was, she was worried. <laughs> That's the best way I can describe it, right? Okay. What ended up happening is about a month later, I go into meditation. I've got a publishing deal for my book. Um, my book is being edited. And I still don't know why George is appearing in my life. I don't, under, I don't understand it. I was not a Beatles fan. I mean, I was a Led Zeppelin and ACDC, and I was a hard rock fan, you know, because I was too young when the Beatles came out, you know. It didn't make any sense to me. Why is this guy, George Harrison, why is he interested in me if I'm not interested in him? You know, I didn't know how to play any of the songs. I didn't know anything about him other than he was one of the Beatles. He was friends with Eric Clapton, and he had something to do with the concert for Bangladesh. I don't get it. I really don't get it. Well, I go into meditation, and I was on a mission in that meditation. I wanted some answers. My book was going to be coming out. Everybody would always ask me what this was all about, why George was interested in me, and I would never know what to say because I really didn't know. And so, I went into meditation and he showed up and um, it was like total pivotal point in my life where I had my first actual challenging experience. You know, I had seen him, he had showed up in different ways in my life, but it was the first time I was like hearing, I could speak to him and he would answer me and it was amazing. And after about five minutes, you know, my logical mind is getting involved. I'm like, hey, how can you get one of your friends or your family or somebody to support me in this whole thing? So when my book comes out, I'm not like talking about this stuff by myself. Is there somebody that you can get to support me? So this way I'm not, you know, I was concerned. I had a successful career and I was concerned about how people were going to look at me because that was 2013. This is so normal now. People do it every day. And I, he kept telling me, just relax, the hard part is over. We've taken care of everything. And so I continued to try to convince him to get one of his friends or family to, to support me in this. And he kept telling me, just relax, the hard part is over. We've taken care of everything. And he must have said this to me eight or nine times. And I thought, what do you mean we've taken care of everything? It was we. I thought this was you and me. I'm finally comfortable and accepting that you're in my life. What do you mean we've taken care of everything? And the second voice appears to the left of where he was, from where he was. And this was a very distinctive voice. This voice was John Lennon's voice. And at that moment, I thought, I've lost it. I must have just lost my mind because now I hear two voices in my head. And the second voice, John Lennon's voice says, don't worry about the people who aren't going to believe you because there are plenty of people who will believe you. Can you imagine? I mean, the, the John Lennon's voice is a very distinctive voice, you know? And so I said, John, are you really a part of this? He said, I'm not making any long-term commitments, but yes, I'm part of this. Well, I didn't understand John's sense of humor at the time, you know, because um, it's pretty funny when you think about it. Yeah. And so that experience went on for about 45 minutes. They were telling me how important my music is to people on earth and how my music actually is being listened to 
by people in heaven and you know have no idea what's really going on with your music because you can't see from your physical perspective you can't see what a positive force that your music is in this world well that went on for 45 minutes two weeks later crazy thing happened where I was at the event in Cincinnati. I meet this woman who's a professional channeler and I would never go see a professional channeler because I thought channeling was just absolute baloney. I thought anybody could make up anything they wanted and just say it was channeled. There was no way of proving any of it so I didn't believe in any of it. But after what I had just experienced in Hawaii two weeks earlier and all the intense magic that was happening in my life on a daily basis just the first couple of years these things would happen about once a month but after i had that experience in hawaii these things happened every day um so many chapters were added to the end of my book just because what, what i was experiencing on a day-to-day basis was completely out of this world i don't know how you could even describe what it was like what i was living with right and so I meet this professional channeler, and I said, I've been having experiences with one person for three years. Um, I didn't say anything about John Lennon, because honestly, I didn't know if he was really partners with George, or if this was just a one-time thing of him. I didn't know what to think of any of it, you know? And so I, I had a session with this woman, and I swear in my life, I've only said the name George Harrison. The first message George gave her to give to me was, just relax, the hard part is over, we've taken care of everything. I said, I know that. He said those exact words to me two weeks ago in Hawaii. And then talked about us being in the same soul group or same soul pod that we've reincarnated together as brothers or friends closer than brothers for so many lifetimes. That's why he had this connection with me and that's why he basically came to wake me up spiritually. And after talking for about three minutes, she says, um, somebody else that wants to be involved in this conversation she said did you know that john lennon is part of this thing i said i just found out two weeks ago in hawaii when i had my first channeling experience and she says well john wants to tell you don't worry about the people who aren't going to believe you because there are going to be plenty of people who will believe you i'm like holy mackerel he said those exact words to me in hawaii and so all of the stuff that they had told me in Hawaii in my first charity experience, this woman read back to me like she was reading it from a book. Like, it was so perfect. It was so exact. It, it was, was the best validation I ever could have had. So that was in October of 2013 when I had that experience. And um, they would connect with different people who were professional channelers and give me messages through these professional channelers. The main channel that they used from like November 2013 up until about a year ago was a guy named Bob Murray, who was a famous channeler from Canada. He died last year, but he channeled George and John for me every day for an hour, an hour and a half for two years. So I literally spoke with George and John every day for two years, and they knew everything about me. I mean, everything. They knew that I had a pimple on the back of my neck. They knew that I had a tile in the kitchen that squeaked if I stepped on the right side. They called me little grasshoppers and nickname, and I never called them. My favorite TV show when I was a kid was called Kung Fu, and the main character's name in that show was Little Grasshopper. I'm telling you, they knew everything about me, and so I was able to ask them a lot of questions. Like, I'm sure if you were me, you would have a lot of questions. 
you know, why am I involved yeah. in this thing, you know? Yeah. Um, and so one of the questions that I had, I know we're probably getting close to the end of this, this interview and there'll be, it's really incredible how all this stuff all connects. But one of the questions I had was, when did George tell John about me? Because, you know, I had three years of experiences with George and then John had just showed up to me that first time. And, you know, so I thought George told John about me. And George said it was the other way around. I said, what do you mean? He said it was the other way around. And I said, I don't understand what you're saying. He said, John told me about you. I said, well, how did John tell me about, how did that happen? He said, when you played for Paul McCartney in 1999, Paul was so impressed with you that, you know, he played your CD in an office on repeat for weeks and for months. And because Paul was connected to John, because they were so close, you know, they grew up together, they were so close for much of their lives, you know. And Paul did a, an interview, a press conference, and they asked him, are you writing with anybody now? And Paul said, on an international press conference, I'm still writing and collaborating with John, and once in a while I get together with George. So I knew that Paul was talking to John inwardly because he said that in his press conference. Okay, so George explained that because Paul and John had such a strong connection between the two of them, that after I played for Paul and Paul got my CD, he communicated with John. There was this flute guy and, you know, he was really impressed by this flute guy, you know. That was 1999. In 2001, George died. First person he connects with in heaven is just John because they were, they were buddies. That's the way this works. If you don't have a buddy or a family member in heaven to connect with when you arrive in heaven, you know, that's when Jesus or Buddha or some one of the other ascended masters or Mother Mary meets you in heaven. But if you have somebody who you're connected with who's already in heaven, whether it's a family member or a close friend, they show you around and they get you acclimated in heaven. So George gets to heaven. He immediately connects with John. Eventually, John tells George about this flute guy who played for Paul in 1999, which was two years earlier. Well, George does this research into me because John tells him he's been working with me for years, even though I'm not aware of it. I, my conscious mind is not aware of it. And so George does this research, finds out that he and I had either been brothers or friends closer than brothers going back so many lifetimes. It's like uncountable. And so because George and I had the bond, kind of like the way John Lennon and Paul McCartney had that deep bond, George started appearing in my life to wake me up so I could become aware of all the stuff that's going on between the heavenly dimension and the physical dimension. This all blew my mind because I didn't know that any of this stuff was possible. But the way they orchestrated all this stuff and the fact that they set up this a translator which was Bob Murray. He was this amazing channeler. And so we were able to have complete conversations. I was able to talk to George and John, just like I'm talking to you. It was amazing, you know. It, it's, um, it changed my life. It changed my life forever. You know, if I'd have to make a list of the people who changed my life forever, Bob Murray would be on that list. And Bob used to do this monthly newsletter. It was called The Stars Still Shine. You can look up his website, The Stars Still Shine. 
Dot-com. And every month he would interview four people. So he had interviewed over 30 years. He interviewed Albert Einstein 25 times, Mark Twain 20 times. You name it, Bob Murray interviewed him. And he interviewed John Lennon at least 20 times and, and George at least 10 times. And so because of that connection that John and George had with Bob Murray, they made an arrangement with him. Where they'd give him free cookies if he did channeling for me. I'm joking about the free cookies. <laughs> you know, they they made this arrangement with him. And oh my God, if I would have paid him for an hour of channeling every day for two years, it would have been a hundred thousand dollars or something like this. But he didn't charge me because it was really important for me to understand what my music was doing, number one. And number two, that my music had I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, before I say this next thing, it's, it's going to sound outrageous and out of this world, but my music had been adopted by the Ascended Masters because it had all this healing quality in it. And so that's why eventually the Ascended Masters started appearing to all these people at my events. 1,200 people have shared the events. A conversation with Buddha or Jesus or Mother Mary or Saint Germain or one of the Ascended Masters and because there was so much love in my music and my music had this heavenly quality, um, I thought I was just a good flute player, you know, but they were using my music to help uplift people to relax their minds and put them in a state so that they ascended masters. So it would be easier for them to lift them up because the people would be in a higher state of consciousness and a little detached, more detached from the physical and the logical mind because my music had this healing spiritual quality. Can you imagine thinking I'm just a good flute player and finding out that how connected I am to the Ascended Masters? I mean, how did I not get that memo? You know what I mean? I guess I had my own belief system that was stopping me. You know, my logical mind was limiting what Spirit was actually trying to share with me. You know what I mean? They wanted me to know that I had this important job in the universe, you know, and that I was supposed to be evolving instead of being stuck where I was, you know? And so all these things have happened and it just gets bigger every year. I mean, every week that I do these events, it's like the energy that's at these events, it's so powerful. I mean, whether people have been meditating for 30 years or for three months, you know, people walk out of my event and they tell everybody this is the most profound experience I ever had. I've never felt spiritual energy like that in my life. And I've meditated for 20 or 30 years. This is where the whole thing has taken me, and it's just been an incredible story. I mean, I, every time I think that there's nothing more that they can do to blow my mind, nothing more that they can do that would be as incredible as what happened the previous week, they find a way to do something that's more amazing and that blows my mind even further. And after a certain point, it's just like, it's like nothing surprises you anymore, you know, but then something so amazing all happened you just you just can't believe it and the people what people experience at my events is like like i'll give you an example like this woman in syracuse new york came on a friday night to one of my events and in front of 40 people she shared that martin luther king came to her and told her he had work for her to do in two to three days 40 people in the room all heard this woman share this okay following monday morning two and a half days later she posts on my Facebook page that her boss calls her into work on Monday morning and puts her in charge of the Martin Luther King Fund. She didn't even know there was a Martin Luther King Fund that was part of her company. 
Your stories are amazing. Well, I don't write the stories. I just live the stories. <laughs> I know, yeah. <laughs> David, I would love to keep chatting with you and hear all your amazing stories, but we've just covered an hour and maybe more. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm getting, I need a break too. So it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, my website, if anybody wants to look me up on the web, is davidyoungmusic.com and I have a Facebook page under David Young. And there's a lot of David Young, so sometimes if you put David Young Harrison, then it's the first one that, that pop, pops up. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and uh, I hope you have a beautiful day. And if anybody has any questions or if anybody has been having any experiences that they want to share with somebody and they don't know who to share with, you can always share those experiences with me. There's nothing that anyone could possibly say that would sound weird or strange to me after what I've experienced the last couple of years. Excellent. I want to say thank you very much, David, for coming on to the show and sharing as well. Uh, you're welcome. Have a great day. Thank you for spending the time to listen to the show. If you want to learn more, check out sansit.com. That's S-A-N-C-I-T dot com. Join Sansit Group on Facebook and contact us if you have any questions. Until next time, have an awesome day and rock on.